you have found the InnoTalks podcast, I'm your host Roman Jurovetsky, assistant professor at Tolbo University in Denmark. In this episode, I interview Christian Binz, who is a group leader at AVAC, the Swiss Federal Institute of Aquatic Science and Technology. Christian has been studying technological development for many years, particularly he has been looking into sustainable technologies such as water treatment. One of the dilemmas that he ran into over and over again in his work is the way how we understand and conceptualize the development of technologies as something that is orchestrated at a local, regional or maybe national level. And what he observes is, however, that the circumstances in which technology evolves and many processes behind are actually global. In our chat, we discuss his take on a global innovation system approach and why the underlying ideas should be on the radar of researchers, industry and not least policymakers. Before we go into the interview, I'd like to remind you to subscribe if you like the content and also please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. And now, without further delay, let's jump straight into the interview with Christian Binz. So today on the line, I have Christian Binz. Why don't you just go ahead and introduce yourself and uh, tell the people and me a little bit about your life before I come and tell people about your life and yes. make some mistakes while doing that. And thanks so much for joining, yes. by the way. Yeah, thanks a lot for the invitation, Roman. Um, glad to be here. Yeah, so I'm Christian Bint. Um, I'm from Switzerland originally. I grew up in a small farmer's village there. And then I went to high school and university in Bern, in the capital city. And at the end of my master's, I actually, by coincidence, met my then later supervisor, uh, Professor Bernhard Truffer, in the hallway. And I had been learning some Chinese and I was asking him, hey, do you have something I could do like um, as a master thesis in China? And he said, yes, absolutely. You should do something. You should contribute to a research project on water recycling technologies and how they develop in China. And I said on the spot, yes, this sounds great. I will do that. And from then on, my life really changed. And I went to China for a master thesis. I also did a PhD with the same topic. And later on, um, several postdoc projects. And finally, yeah, I ended up in the current position, which is a yeah, kind of a group leader position at AIRVAC, which is the Swiss Federal Water Research Institute of the ETH domain. And yeah, where I'm now working on big questions around globalization and innovation and also the geography of sustainability transition. All right. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, that sounds super interesting. And it's, uh, I mean, you always had this, on the one hand, the sustainability perspective. On the other hand, you had this global perspective in your work. So your recent paper is called Global Innovation Systems. Well, it's not really recent, it's actually from 2017, but one of the big papers and the very well-cited papers uh, it comes up with an idea of global innovation systems. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, um, I guess this paper, it's one of, the, this kind of paper, a uh, paper which you write every 10 years, I would say. So basically, it builds on a lot of um, work and thinking I've been doing since the early days of even my master project. And I think it actually, you know, came out of a frustration because I was um, also educated in economic geography and innovation studies a little bit and then moved into sustainability transitions a literature. But I realized that, especially in geography, 95% of all the publications were always kind of focusing on a regional scale and arguing that 
you know, face-to-face contacts and kind of informal institutions and clusters and industrial districts and regional innovation systems are so important to push um, innovation. And I always had the feeling, well, in today's so interconnected world, there is actually an important, also more internationalized story to the whole innovation process, but it was just not covered in, in literature really, um, especially not if you focus on to innovation and also on the new types of innovation that happen in this kind of clean tech, green technology space. So yeah, I realized also with my work in China that there was a lot of really important kind of international uh, interactions that kind of pushed innovation processes, but it was really hard to um, get a hold of them through the existing theories and conceptual frameworks. And I always said, okay, at some point I will write uh, this kind of paper where we try to really, you know, think deep about how we could reconceptualize, especially innovation system approaches in a way that they are better able to deal with these um, internationalized technological innovation processes. So, okay. Um, I, I mean, let me just go a little bit back. You just mentioned uh, economic geography. Uh, you mentioned mm-hmm. transitions, you mentioned sustainability. Could you just briefly explain what these different communities are, where they come from, and how they actually uh, get into innovation, or what are the these uh, overlaps or these uh, connecting points? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think there's probably two real streams of thinking that somehow collided also in my work and also recently in broader kind of um, just academic um, context. So first there's geography, economic geography. And I would say a lot of innovation studies is also really close to economic geography. And uh, this uh, line of thinking had a very much, uh, very strong regional uh, focus looking into these clusters and regional innovation systems and, you know, assessing how they generate new knowledge and, you know, under which conditions they can move into new um, industries, new new paths. Um, so they had a very strong focus on, let's say, space and path dependency in especially regional settings. And then on the other hand, there was the sustainability transitions literature, which is much more about, um, let's say, sectorial uh, systems and deep transformative change in uh, sectorial systems, um, or even like, you know, social technical systems like agro-food sector, or I don't know, the water sector, energy sector, trying to understand how kind of path dependency are established at a more sectoral level, and then how they can be overcome by kind of, you know, actors working in niches and trying out very new things. Think about the energy transition, for example. And so the two perspectives were not really put in touch. Um, And so then a very natural point where such a connection could be made was through the innovation system approach, because in transition studies, technological innovation systems was a really kind of big um, theory at the time when I did my PhD. And on the geography side, geography side, the regional innovation system, national innovation system was still kind of a well-debated topic. And so they had this, actually the same, let's say, um, theoretical origin, but they were not really put into a lot of connection. And so then we actually also started this paper by saying, okay, let's think about innovation systems more broadly, what kind of brings them all together and how could we use that to build a bridge between these two kind of separate streams of uh, thinking. And I think this paper tries to do, to do this to some degree, but um, I mean, it's of course a big task that's not, not finished uh, just with uh, having this, this paper. A central point, one of the core points, I guess, in this whole literature is the point of learning. The notion of learning, it came up when uh, all the interviews I did so far, people said, you know, what it actually is about, it's learning. So uh, could you Mm -hmm. briefly elaborate on, you know, what is the idea of learning in economic geography and then what is the idea of, uh, of learning in the transition literature? 
because I, mm-hmm. I kind of get the feeling uh, now. Uh, I mean, on the one hand, it's it is the same, right? So you have somehow the same uh, the same notion. On the other hand, maybe one was too optimistic about uh, the ability mm-hmm. of people to learn, and then the other was maybe mm-hmm. a little bit too pessimistic and too focused on you know. Uh, technologies and agents competing against each other and uh, there being path dependency. Uh, so do you feel uh, the same? Yeah, well, in, in my understanding, I would say the whole notion of learning is different in two um, fields. So in economic geography, is a lot of um, literature about learning on the technology side. So, you know, how the actors in the region, whatever, learn about new technologies, create new industries, create new capabilities in firms, also very kind of firm-centric perspective often. Um, and in uh, transitions, it's a very different thing. So there we think about learning much more broadly, not just related to new technologies themselves, but also about the embedding of these technologies in wider societal structures. So how do the actors not only learn about how to create um, a nice electric car, But then also, how do they learn about how to embed that in um, kind of a new uh, kind of a market structure? How do you create economic incentives that uh, actually push people to using these cars? How do you change kind of deeply held cognitive beliefs by the users? How do you create the supportive infrastructure with the charging stations? And so all that is considered, as I would say, another form of learning, second and also third order learning, where the actors don't just learn about the, the artifact and technology itself, but also about you know, how to embed and what kind of governance arrangements would help to actually push for radical innovation. So in that sense, it's much, I would say, transition is, is much broader, probably also a bit fuzzier concept of learning. But um, uh, that's also one of the key messages we always try to push in, in different papers to say that we need to go beyond this very strong knowledge focus in economic geography and include these other forms of learning that's more about market, institutions, um, investment, whatsoever. Mm. I mean, there is this distinction and uh, that comes up a lot and it's a kind of an old distinction, the whole idea about uh, doing, using, interacting and then the STI, the science, technology, innovation mode of uh, creating knowledge, creating insights, uh, creating innovation that comes up again and again and also it is also found in your paper and we are going to get there a little bit later. But um, Mm -hmm. when you talk about these different levels, so would you say, uh, you know, you can find these uh, modes of learning, uh, you know, expressed in both traditions, expressed in both types of learning uh, when comparing Mm -hmm. uh, economic geography with uh, transitions? Um, Yes, I guess. I would say... Um, oh, you can also say this is a nonsensical question that I'm asking. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> I, have, like, I have oh. to admit, I've never really thought about it deeply. So it's probably challenging to come up with a very smart answer. But, um, uh, well, I would say no matter whether you have an STI type of innovation or a DUI type of innovation, of course, the, the learning about technology itself is different in these two models. But in both cases, the artifact you produce would still have to be also embedded in societal structures. Mm. And so then it doesn't really... But that's also the two axes, you know, of the in the we have in the GIS paper, where we say, um, you know, just the, the technology learning is on the y-axis, and then the whole embedding in societal structures on the y, uh, the x, x-axis. Yeah, maybe uh, I think maybe this is just, a, just an idea yeah. for a new paper. We should think about that, right? 
it could be it could be actually yeah 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 yeah. what what? no not really not really but uh (laughs) okay uh let me get back to uh one thing that you just mentioned before the whole face-to-face idea and uh um in the same in a time of globalization and a time of you know digital technologies I can sit here right now and conduct, uh, being able to conduct an interview with you being in Switzerland. Uh, you know, we have all of that. And then at the same time, we have the strong emphasis of uh, face-to-face uh, in the innovation system tradition. So uh, what's your take on that? And what was the frustration there? If there was a frustration. Yeah, the, yeah so the whole face-to-face thing, I think it was really overrated in the... In the existing literature, saying that that's an absolute must for all kinds of innovation to happen, basically. And I would say one has to actually differentiate a little bit. So there's a lot of um, um, types of technologies, types of innovation, you know, where face to face interaction isn't like the most crucial thing. So if you think about um, the kind of online communities that build open source software solutions, um, probably, I, I'm, probably they never ever meet each other. The people coding these um, these uh, pieces of software, but they still actually work towards a common goal, and they really understand each other. Potentially, there is some face-to-face meeting at some point, but somehow you can also coordinate differently. So that's probably a, an extreme case. So in the paper, then we say, well, if you look at the innovation process that underlies uh, the development of solar panels, that's really different from the innovation process that underlies wind turbines. And I would agree that in, in wind turbine innovation you need a lot of face-to-face interaction throughout the whole innovation process whereas with solar panels you can actually really disintegrate disembed different parts of the innovation process to different parts of the world and still you know as a whole globally you can come up with amazing innovation without having very strong let's say clusters or uh, regional innovation systems that push uh, the technology but um at this point, I mean, uh, aren't we just going back to the notions of tacitness of knowledge, uh, our ability to codify knowledge, and maybe if looking at the artifacts, our ability to put knowledge and expertise into some modules and just say, okay, the, these things are, you know, we have some sort of complexity, let's modularize it. Uh, or would you argue that, uh, you know, that's not necessarily the case in the two examples that you just gave? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, probably one could criticize the GIS framework a little bit for being a bit simplistic on this <laughs> distinction. And I guess I would agree. I mean, also the state of the art, I guess, in economic geography with kind of differentiated knowledge, knowledge bases would also argue there's different forms. It's not, not just UI, STI, there's also more kind of, kind of symbolic knowledge uh, that will play a role in many of these processes. Um, so I guess um, one could criticize that that's a bit simplistic, this distinction. And but, but I think, you know, for creating a new typology and being as generic as possible, which is also kind of uh, one of the aims of the paper, it, it's okay to actually uh, distract or let's say uh, simplify a little bit from the state of the art in other fields. Yeah. In your paper, you have uh, a uh, one of the figures in your paper is a hypothetical innovation system. Uh, innovation, well, glo- a hypothetical mm-hmm. global innovation system that uh, introduces uh, these different levels of regional, national, transnational, global, and then it also has, you know, uh, a few functions. So, could you uh, g- give us a little bit uh, an overview of, uh, you know, what are the core concepts here or the core ideas to understand? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a really fun example because um, we were thinking about uh, actually a long time, okay, what would be a nice example, kind of illustration of our ideas which we could put into the paper, like a case that illustrates an innovation system that's actually, you know, let's say, um, um, kind of split into different parts of the different subsystems that exist in different parts of the world. And we thought about that very hard and then we came up with an idea about, okay, we could use this kind of uh, healthcare example. And actually a few months later, some of our colleagues at Utrecht universities had created a paper which was exactly outlining such a case. <laughs> and it was really funny. So we said, okay, perfect. So they just give us the case that, you know, this is actually relevant in real life. So the idea here is that we say, okay, so if you think about um, a global innovation system in healthcare, for example, that's creating um, a cure for the coronavirus, or in this case, we thought about HIV. So how would this be structured? Who would be important um, actors? I mean, probably now we could even take coronavirus as an example, and then we'd say, okay, so probably the coordination of the innovation process would happen at the global level. So there would be multinational corporations with their R&D departments. There would be the World Health Organization, potentially some funders like... Um, like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, that would set up a strategy and say, okay, we somehow coordinate this innovation process. Now it has to be fast and to the point. So let's just, um, you know, see what's out there and try to combine it in a way that we can get a cure very quickly. So then probably um, there would be other levels, like more like regional clusters where part of the knowledge is created. So there would be one biotech clusters in, in Boston where people would work on a highly kind of specialized new type of vaccine. Um, which could only be created there in this environment. There would be other, maybe another cluster in in, in Switzerland with or the, the pharma industry there, which would work on, I don't know, antiviral um, treatments, which also based on a kind of regional specialization. And then if you, the investment, you know, would again come from maybe international donors, WHO. And then where would it be tested? So this would be some kind of um, university hospitals in different parts of the world, maybe in China, maybe in Japan, in, in, in the EU, who knows, who would then actually run the first uh, field trials and feedback information to this um, overall innovation system structure. So the point is that, you know, different parts of the innovation process happen in different specialized places, but then it's still coordinated. Whether this innovation succeeds or not depends on this global coordination in a way. And so just one of the parts will not really um, create a nice outcome. You need the, actually the, the whole system structure that's actually at, happening at the, at the global level. So I think that's really the core of of what we want to say with the paper. And um, I guess there's actually many sectors nowadays where these kind of coordination mechanisms really play a key role if you want to understand innovation. So it wouldn't be enough to just look into Boston or into Switzerland or into China to understand what's going on. You would have to have this whole global system perspective. And I think this is also a very interesting example of global collaboration in terms of the, you know, given the current uh, situation about, you know, there are some nationalist movements and some populist ideas coming up. Oh, well, why shouldn't we just, you know, close yeah, the exactly. borders and send yeah, in our country and yeah, just... I, I also, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I also think the, the current situation actually shows how interconnected the world economy is and probably also the innovation process relate to that then and how absurd it is to just basically close borders and think that you can somehow survive on your own so you know i think the current also crisis shows this very clearly that what's needed is much more actually coordination also internationally and not less but is it uh would you say this is a result of uh path dependencies of globalizations uh, or is it actually something that's inevitable because we need to uh share the burden we need to collaborate 
just naturally. Probably it's more past dependency that came out of the globalization processes that happened in the past 20, 30 years. So I guess, um, let's say 50 years ago, maybe you could have, um, the world was really different and you, the, let's say innovation chains, value chains were much less kind of disintegrated globally. So it's really kind of, um, I don't know, the current situation is really kind of, yeah, I could say a path dependency of past development. Um, but now it's impossible to just basically turn the wheel back and, and uh, act as if there was no interconnection <laughs> as like 50 or 100 years ago. But even then, there was probably more interconnection than people usually kind of um, admit. So anyway, so I think in the current situation, and that's also maybe also in terms of the policy um, implications of this work, we also think we wanted to make a point that, you know, in many sectors, some form of global governance or let's say international coordination would actually be helpful and, and needed to get also the most out of innovation process if you think about sustainability transitions and yeah, instead of going into a trade war between China and the US and Europe in the solar PV field could have been better to somehow coordinate before that happened and come up with a nice governance solution that somehow distributes the gains and losses of uh, new technology development globally. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think in the paper also what I find interesting, you, I mean, you try to balance, uh, you say on the one hand, yeah, there is this global perspective and it is important and it is key to address it. But on the other hand, you make links back to uh, this local regional subsystems and there you have, and have like one subsection that calls, uh, talks about subsystems and structural couplings. So what uh, would mm -hmm. you say are, uh, what are these structural couplings first, maybe? Um, yeah, that's a kind of a, a tricky concept. I'm not sure if we have fully conceptualized that in the paper yet, but the idea is to say that um, certainly also today there's certain clusters, certain uh, regions with specializations that are still very important um, for innovation. And so the thing is then whether the global system works or not is then whether, you know, there's actually nicely working connections between these kind of more regionalized clusters and global coordination structures. And we think about there's two ways this can be coupled. So one is more like on the actor basis. So it could be that certain actors like a multinational corporation or maybe the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, that they're active in these different subsystems and they're able to basically combine the, 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 the knowledge investments, the, the, the kind of mar market possibilities that come out of these different uh, subsystems and kind of combine them at a more international level. Another second type of coupling would be more at an institutional level. So if there's certain types of standards, types of regulations, kind of, I don't know, it could even be kind of cultural factors that look uh, similar between these different systems. It could be a way to actually then combine the activities easily. So thinking about um, proximities, you know, beyond just like um, geographic proximity, institutional proximity, cultural proximity, uh, these elements, and that they could also help to uh, then combine, you know, uh, development in different parts of the world to a coherent whole. Right. So you, I think you just mentioned proximities and I already know uh, I, I almost need to find one of the proximity people to talk to actually next time because this is a very, very important concept when it comes to all of this literature. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think this is also why we see uh, so much interactions between, uh, in, well, innovation scholars but and also economic geographers in the last couple of years, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, let me go a little bit deeper into, we talked before about um, the DUI and SDI, and mm -hmm. you have this really nice matrix, and I think if one thing 
at least uh, I, in my opinion and my experience, if there is one thing that students uh, and also other people remember for the, from your paper, then it's every time this matrix about this, you know, mm -hmm. the evaluation they mentioned and the innovation modes and then just bringing those two together. So um, mm -hmm. could you briefly talk about um, how this actually links to this whole idea of uh, the globalness or the global perspective first? Sorry, uh, I didn't get the question. Okay, completely. so uh, sorry. So uh, let me rephrase that. So uh, I mean, th there is this uh, there is this uh, nice matrix in your paper which talks about valuation mm -hmm. on and uh, and mm -hmm. the innovation mode, and then tries to bring those two together and provides some um, insights about the type of GIS. So you develop a mm -hmm. typology through that. Uh, could you briefly talk about, you know, how do you get into the, the thinking process behind that? Like, how did you get there? Uh -huh. Okay, yeah. Um, so this was, um, maybe if I, uh, just to give some context, so the paper, we actually had two ideas. So one was to uh, conceptualize these global linkages, you know, the strategic couplings, uh, just like the, the global dimension of innovation processes that we observe in, in many sectors. And the second part was then, trying to come up with a framework that's a bit more useful, maybe also predictive in a way, um, you know, that you can actually formulate hypotheses out of um, this kind of innovation system perspective. And the way to build this was really, um, so of course the knowledge dimension was kind of clear because there's a lot of literature on that um, in economic geography, as we've discussed before. But then we always said, yeah, so if you bring in more of a transition perspective, then, you know, this other type of learning, this other, this non-knowledge-based type of innovation has to come into the picture. And then we said, okay, let's let's call this um, valuation. There's also literature in economic geography, really nice work on valuation. Um, are actually, authors arguing that in today's world, um, it's not only about innovation races anymore in the sense of, you know, who builds the most high-tech solution for the kind of existing markets, but there's a lot of also now valuation uh, races, uh, which is more also in the sustainability field where you say, okay, who creates the best solution to reduce climate gas emissions or to actually recycle more water? And there's uh, the main challenge there is not technology development often, but more this kind of societal embedding and finding ways to solve these problems in a um, also low tech um, but kind of socially acceptable way and so that's the second dimension valuation and then we actually realized well yes so on both levels um, there's different generic models on how you know this type of innovation and learning processes would work and this created this uh, four field table but uh, it's based on a lot of thinking you know in the past five ten years at this interface between geography and transitions when you talk about evaluation and uh, the solving of problems, is this related or is this the uh, notion of mission-oriented innovation in this case? That's a good question. Um, it was not intended to be uh, connected directly to mission-oriented uh, innovation policies, but I think there's a kind of a natural bridge, yes, that on this dimension, yeah, it's much more about kind of mission-oriented yeah, types of, of innovation and also all these kind of yeah, mm. low-tech innovations that still make a lot of sense, which are not really in the old paradigm of just like innovating in for the sake of um, economic whatever prosperity, but it's more about innovating in the, you know, in the sake of uh, saving the planet or you know, solving big societal challenges. Yeah. 
and not i mean you still can make some money while saving the planet yeah, sure, I mean, sure. it's not, I mean, uh, that sometimes happens it, it does happen so okay so i mean if i have this matrix and i think it is a very very useful matrix if thinking about different typologies of industries uh, could you briefly walk us through uh, you know what are the examples and what are the dimensions there and how does it interact and uh, what can we actually expect what should we ex be mm -hmm. expecting mm -hmm. okay so um, the first let's you know the axis so there's the knowledge axis or we call it the innovation mode which on the one hand side is science technology innovation so on that end you would think about innovation in a lab um, with very kind of codified knowledge, uh, science-based experimentation, you know, like in a biotech lab, probably, uh, developing, I don't know, uh, a new cure for, <laughs> for the coronavirus. And on the other side, extreme, you'll think about doing, using, interacting types of, you know, knowledge and learning, which is more like the example we always bring is um, luxury watchmaking in Switzerland. So there's not much um, lab-based experiments in these um, watchmaking firms, but there's a lot of kind of experience-based learning, you know, a lot of um, just like craftsmanship, culture, you know, tacit knowledge that goes into creating such a high-value, um, really expensive watch. So you need to actually spend all your life learning about all the parts of the watch and how they interact and then bring it, then, them together in a new design when you innovate. And you can only do that in a few places, uh, which actually have built up this knowledge and kind of also education infrastructure, uh, you know, around this uh, this uh, type of product. So there's two extremes on the knowledge side and then on the evaluation side. On the one hand side, you can think about um, products or solutions that are really standardized mass products like a smartphone or a TV set, which you can produce somewhere and you can sell it anywhere on the planet in highly standardized kind of market environments. And on the other extreme, there's cases like a wastewater treatment plant, which has totally customized valuation. So each product is actually a one of its one of a type design, which is adapted to local circumstances, to the needs of the specific city, to the I don't know geophysical conditions, to the regulations about water quality standards, and so on. So you know, if you want to actually innovate there, you need to know a lot about these different contexts in which you then want to embed your your solution. So there we have the two axes. And so then we can say on the one hand side, on the top right corner, there's cases like solar photovoltaics, which is a standardized product for global mass markets. And the innovation mode is pretty much science, technology, innovation driven. So in this case, we would actually expect innovation processes that are really internationalized. Um, there's a lot of interaction between different parts of the world because both of the knowledge and also the market access is really internationalized and easily transferable in space. And on the other extreme, if you think about the bottom left corner, so there's wind power, especially the early experiments with wind power in, the, in, in Denmark, they really happened in one um, regionally confined cluster where everybody came together, um, the, the, the firms, the early lead users, the regulators, the investors, um, some intermediaries, some associations, the testing fields. They all had to just very closely collaborate to uh, create the first wind turbines and what was much more like a, a locally embedded bricolage process, very much like creating a, a luxury Swiss watch. <laughs> and then in between, there's the other two cases um, where either the innovation or the valuation part is actually mobile and the other part is rather sticky. So then we think about carbon capture and storage as a case of a kind of STI-driven innovation, which is, however, then similar to a wastewater treatment plant. It really has to be adapted to local circumstances in this customized valuation system. So there you would expect a lot of knowledge um, circulation 
uh, on the innovation part, but then a lot of kind of embedding in specific places on the kind of valuation side. And then finally, electric cars, we said that's more a case of an industry where the manufacturing is doing using interacting, you know, as in the traditional car manufacturing clusters. But then, of course, valuation is much more standardized in the car sector because, you know, cars are sold globally to kind of a similar market structure. So we have four ideal types that really then differ in terms of the, the spatial embedding, spatial mobility of the kind of key innovation inputs, innovation resources. Yeah. No, and uh, that reminds me of some uh, work that we have been doing uh here uh, when now thinking about the whole idea about electric vehicles uh, that maybe it's not so much the electric vehicles we have to talk about when thinking about this industry but actually you know who's producing the batteries and who's producing the mm -hmm. uh, you know the electronics behind it and who is uh, doing all kinds of different things that go into the product and then who in the end is uh, taking care of the infrastructure and uh, you know, the interaction between the artifact and the people who are going to drive it. So um, and those are really different arenas, I would almost say, in that case. Rather than yeah, you're pointing to a very important issue. Um, maybe there's even two important issues here. So one is that the kind of characterization of industries we have in the paper is quite rough. So, of course, if you look into solar panels and the whole value chain, then you see there's different parts to the value chain. And each of them actually you know, could be positioned in a different quadrant of this uh, four-field table. So that kind of complicates the history a little bit. And the other important part is, of course, um, industries move over time. And the electric car, I think that's a great example where, let's say, the, the, the main locus of innovation for the past 100 years was the internal combustion engine. And so that's very much of a DUI type of um, technology. So you need a lot of engineering experience to build such a complex machine. And so certain clusters in Germany and Japan and the USA actually specialized around this uh, type of technology. And now with the electric car, yeah, the key component suddenly is a battery. <laughs> and so, of course, totally different knowledge um, uh, or innovation mode behind batteries and behind the combustion engine. Uh, probably the valuation system is still similar, but actually then you, you can expect massive, then also spatial, dynamic spatial relocation in the industry if such a shift happens in an industry. So you could also use actually trace, you know, how industries move in this four-field table over time. And you could then actually also use this to predict to uh, some degree, you know, what kind of spatial dynamics you would expect in the next step. So if, if, electric, if the car industry is really all about batteries, then where would, they, um, would batteries be produced? Where would the innovation happen? How would it differ from the internal combustion engine? Yeah, um, so absolutely. there you see, I think there's some predictive... Uh, capability to this framework no definitely uh, i think that's super interesting uh, in a way like you know maybe we should be really breaking it them down and looking at the value chain and saying uh, where exactly does this key activity happen for a given product mm -hmm. for a given uh, sector and uh, and then take it from there so it's kind mm -hmm. of uh, reminds me a little bit of the old discussion about offshoring and outsourcing that we had for you know maybe 15 mm -hmm. years ago and uh, then the, the whole discussion was about you know wh where the where do we locate the most value creating activities and then take it from there mm -hmm. so yep. uh, of course obviously on a very different level more on a company level rather than on uh, an industrial level as in this case yep. yeah um so now that we have the prediction so what does it mean i mean wh what do we learn from it uh, for policy for example <laughs> I, i mean it's like yeah, the, i'm so sorry for the so what question but uh, <laughs> it had to come at some point 
though it's a good question. Um, so the example we always um, bring up here is um, the story with the solar PV, the solar PV industry, which you know arguably is um, an industry with uh, very strong spatial dynamics. And so what we saw there in the past was you know that you know this industry actually developed. It, it was it, it originated in the USA and then it moved into Europe and Japan in the 90s. Yeah, and then uh, from 2000 2005 on, there was this massive massive shift uh, into China, especially with the cell and the module manufacturing. And policy discourse, especially in Germany, was then that um, the Germans they had invested a lot of money into subsidizing uh, renewable energies with their feed-in tariff system. So the Germans had actually spent a lot of money. Um, subsidizing renewable energy, but then the manufacturing of the solar PV cells and, and manufacturing lines that, that all actually moved into China. And so people say, yeah, this was a really bad policy because we actually supported China developing an industry that then destroyed our own um, PV industry. And so then we always argue, yes, if you had known about uh, the global innovation system framework back in the time and you had analyzed, okay, what sort of technology are we dealing with here, PV uh, cells, PV panels, are they what innovation mode do they rely on? What kind of validation system do they have? You could have predicted that this kind of spatial dynamic would happen at some point. And maybe you could have um, reformulated policy in a way to keep more value added in, in Germany. I mean, the other point there is also that actually the Germans, they actually retained a lot of value added in their local system because actually they're still specialized in the upstream um, parts of the value chain which have really high value added, like the, the manufacturing machinery for for PV modules. So in a way, even if the the, the, the kind of the manufacturing, let's say the, the the core of the value chain, just the manufacturing of modules, moved into China, it was actually a win-win situation because the, the German suppliers also um, profited a lot from that, and then also the consumers in Germany profited a lot because they had cheaper PV uh, modules in the end, and then also the global energy transition profited from this uh, high spatial dynamics because with the move. Uh, from Germany into China, actually, the, the, the prices for these panels could go down much faster and the whole transition could speed up thanks to these um, dynamics. So I guess there's a lot that policymakers could take from that. Um, on the one hand side, to support, um, let's say, the, um, the competitive advantages in, in developed economies, also for the policymakers in the emerging economies to try to locate new green industries so they could think about which type of industry is most suitable, most easily transferable in space to our country. And then finally, also for global governance, for global um, institutions that think about, okay, where should we maybe add some more coordination internationally to speed up transitions or innovation? If we take it uh, to the other side, so if we think about companies in that case, so where are they located? I mean, what can they take away from that? Is it something about knowledge or knowledge sourcing competences or is it something about competition? Is it something about investments? Probably the, the thing about competition um, would be interesting for firms. So you can think about, okay, so what's the core um, capability in our industry? Um, what, what's the kind of core technology and what sort of innovation system lies behind that globally and how should we go about strategically protecting our key kind of assets so should we outsource let's say for a German um, PV manufacturing company so should they outsource just the manufacturing to China or should they also send the manufacturing machinery and also produce that in China 
and what would it mean for a competitive advantages? And so in this case, you could argue, well, better keep the machinery manufacturing in China and uh, in Germany, um, and you profit from the kind of local cluster effects, uh, types of uh, tacit knowledge that, that are not easily transferable in space, and you outsource the manufacturing to China, uh, which can then not really get a hold on the kind of key technological capabilities in this specific field. So as a competitive strategy, this, this could be interesting that you actually try to identify, you know, where the kind of sticky and mobile parts are in your, in your industry. And then you try to protect the ones that are, are sticky and uh, don't kind of outsource those to other places. I mean, as you said before, let me go a little bit back. You said before when you started uh, working on your PhD, and I also remember it from my own uh, times uh, writing the PhD, the technological innovation system has been very, very popular uh, in that mm -hmm. area. Um, so, And the technological innovation system, I mean, as I recall it, it's been very, it kind of prescribed, gave you a recipe, you know, you want to have this and that technology developed in your country, region, whatever area we are looking at, uh, then these are the kind of steps that you should be taking as a policymaker most of uh, the time. Um, is there some sort of prescription in uh, the global innovation system here that you propose of that kind? Um, well, we never, we didn't develop a sort of a cookbook solution uh, in the paper. So the TIS framework had this cookbook um, recipe book kind of paper by Berger Kandal and also by Hecker Dedal in 2007, 2008, where they basically said, okay, here's the seven kind of or eight innovation system functions you need to identify in your local system. And then you can use that as an input into policy uh, processes. And I always found this um, a little bit naive, especially because it totally ignored these uh, international connections largely. And so then it looked into one system that was delineated with a national or regional border. And then you just looked, okay, is there like knowledge creation? Is there investment mobilization, resource mobilization? Is there legitimation and so on? Which is really myopic in a way in, in many cases, because you know if you think about these global dependencies, in some cases it could be absolutely no problem if you don't develop knowledge locally, if you're able to import this through, for example, um, just buying automated manufacturing lines or something like that. Or maybe you don't need a local bank to invest in your technology because there's actually global investors from the US that just support you with uh, cheap money. Um, so yeah, we, we actually didn't want to yet come up with such a, a recipe book. So maybe in the future we could do that. We also simplified the functions a little bit. So we only ended up with uh, four key system resources. And I guess uh, this simplification would also actually need another paper to actually uh, support this simplification of the TIS approach. So we also get some pushback sometimes from the TIS people because we just simplified their framework a little bit. <laughs> but we thought uh, it actually makes uh, a lot of sense and it, it makes for, uh, let's say, you know, operable framework that you can use in your research, but which also a policymaker could use to analyze a certain sector. So we get a few policymakers from Sweden that actually use this now in their analysis of um, Swedish sectors, key sectors, and trying also to identify where they might actually be exposed to international, the risk of international, let's say, knowledge spillovers, um, or, you know, things, uh, geographic dynamics, which they don't anticipate currently. But it's a kind of, a, we kept it a little bit more open and, you know, leave it to the analysts to really then make sense of it and pick and choose the, the parts that seem most useful to them. When we now talk about analysis, uh, what would be the methodological challenges when thinking about such a framework, when 
trying to conduct a proper analysis because you know one thing that we observe quite often that I observed at least and I got I think I, bur I got even burned with that uh, you know I uh, found that the transition framework was so nice and it's such you know tells such a compelling story and then you try start to operationalize you start operationalizing things and you realize well mm, that's kind of not really working out this is not really measuring mm -hmm. what it should be measured so if you take this from more of a methodological indicator, maybe even type of perspective, where would you see the biggest challenges or and opportunities also? Yeah, there's of course big challenges because you're um, talking about global systems. So it's really hard to um, identify all the actors, all the networks, all the kind of institutions that are important globally to support an innovation. That's probably an impossible task. I mean, there are some nice indicators for the innovation side with patents and publications. You know, there's uh, yeah, well-established indicators you can use. But then the question is, okay, so what would you use on the valuation side? So there's much more intangible processes going on with legitimation, with, um, well, maybe financial investment. You could still cover that somehow with the existing global databases, maybe from global development banks, international trade organizations, and so on. Um, yeah, and then also market structures, where do the niche markets emerge and what kind of also policy dynamics are behind that. It's really hard to have a comprehensive picture. But I would also say um, the intention of this um, framework is not so much to be a theory, you know, which you could operationalize directly with certain indicators, but more to have a heuristic, which actually helps you to position more detailed, more focused research in a broader framework. So you could say, let's focus just on one aspect of this whole mess. Maybe let's just trace the, the global investment streams in the car industry and then make sense, sense of it in a broader understanding of global innovation systems. So then you can use it as a focal device and you say, okay, here's the problem. It's about understanding uh, one part of the global innovation system framework and we now operationalize this through you know, well-established indicators in the global value chain literature, for example. So in that sense, I would say it's more of a meso-level heuristic and not so much the aim to have a full-fledged GIS theory with a very kind of clearly defined set of indicators and uh, yeah, methodological procedures. It's also there a bit um, more open. But I guess there's also a lot of opportunities. So now trying to develop this further, we realize that there's actually new sort of databases which you can use to also reconstruct much more complex global um, system structures. So thinking about big data, stuff you can scrap from, from social media. Uh, we're working with global newspaper repositories now where we try to trace, you know, which actors actively legitimize certain green technologies in different parts of the world. So there's all these amazing new opportunities, machine-based learning. I know some persons in the in Denmark, there's really experts on that. <laughs> so there's ample opportunity to also now with today's databases come up with more uh, also kind of global analysis procedures. Well, uh, yeah, definitely. And yeah, as you mentioned, the persons, I know also some of these people in Denmark are working with that. So uh, definitely. Uh, so let's uh, maybe uh, start to slowing down here and uh one maybe last question and uh if you have something to add you add something uh what are you working on right now i mean this paper by now is uh how like three years old soon i guess and uh, mm -hmm. so what happened since i mean you said there is already uh there are some studies some people have started started using it and obviously we can see the numbers of citations are going up so people must be 
using it to some extent, but uh, do you still work with this or the, did you start looking at some elements of that or did you go somewhere else in the last three years? Um, yeah, so after uh, having finished this paper, I actually just sit, sit back and wait for uh, <laughs> citations. So, <laughs> I mean, that's also a good strategy, I guess. <laughs> it was a lot of work, so I was really exhausted. <laughs> no, um, so we actually then uh, I moved on to uh, specify certain limitations of this um, uh, framework. So one thing we did was to connect it more to catching up studies and to say, um, so what would it mean, you know, for catching up countries, China, India, South Africa, whatever, actually, you know, countries that actually tried to catch up in these different types of industries. How do these catch-up processes also differ? Um, so that's one paper we're working on. There's another one which was recently published where we took solar PV panels. And then we actually disintegrated the value chain and we looked into the TIS configuration, the upstream core and downstream part of the value chain and tried to make sense of this complexity. Um, there's more in the pipeline. Um, one thing that's interesting um, is then looking into certain, just like one of these four system resources, and now we're working on a paper where we look into legitimation and how that's created globally in the, in the, in the, the water recycling industry. Um, so it's an, I think the nice thing about this is that it opens a lot of avenues for future research. We also have some colleagues now that uh, explicitly looked into what's been happening at the regional level, really, in this global innovation system structure. So they did that with the wind power um, case, I think, in Germany. Um, yeah, so we hope that there's much more uptake and that people start to also target the weaknesses. I think one other thing would be the dynamics, you know, how industries actually develop over time and move in these uh, four field tables and what it means for the geographic distribution of innovation and kind of um, economic activities. So, yeah, there's a lot that can be done and um, I'm sure to actually follow up on this. So it's more, it's kind of an agenda setting piece. So I will personally try to work on that for the next 10 years and fill it up with new um, sorts of evidence. I personally also hope to actually um, have it applied to more mature sectors. So to cross compare what we now did for these kind of emerging clean tech sectors, you know, with well-established sectors like yeah, the car industry or I don't know, <clears throat> IT, um, semiconductors, whatever, to see whether it also holds in these kind of situations or not, or how the framework would have to be adapted. So there's certainly a lot of uh, work to do with this. <laughs> Fascinating, fascinating. Uh, I mean, it's amazing to see when someone is just, uh, you know, having such a strong agenda and actually follows up on uh, the things that are are created. Because in this day, paper, as you say, definitely creates plenty of opportunities to uh, go more into detail and uh, clarify. All right. Well, it, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much, Chris, for joining. Is there something Thank that I forgot? Uh, I don't know. We've been around a lot, but uh, if there's something that I forgot, please let me know. <laughs> no, I think we really covered we covered it all. I would say. <laughs> so thanks for the great question. Well, that... <laughs> really, we really went through the whole paper. I guess. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, again, thank you very much for joining, and uh, yeah, thanks. Bye. Yeah. Thanks to you. Bye bye. Thanks so much.